Thank you so much, worship team. Well, Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas. We're glad to be together this morning. Let, uh, let us open up in a word of prayer as we dive into our sermon. Father, we are so grateful for this opportunity to continue our time of celebrating Advent as we think about Jesus who came to bring hope, love, joy, and peace. And today, as we examine your word, we're going to see some other characteristics of this amazing Messiah that was born 2,000 years ago. And allow these truths to be a blessing to us, allow them to be an encouragement to us, and allow these truths to better prepare our hearts to worship the Christ of Christmas. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just over 400 years ago, William Shakespeare penned a question that, be, that is now one of his most remembered lines. What's in the name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell just as sweet. And he uses this line to make a point. His point is that a name is ultimately irrelevant. It's the character, it's the nature, it's the essence of the person that really matters. The character far outweighs the actual name. And while this principle is undoubtedly true, it doesn't really hold up when we start reading through Scripture. And that's because in Scripture, names are, are often equivalent to a person's essence or identity or character. Names in the Bible are richly symbolic in revealing about a person. When biblical characters were choosing names for their children, they weren't looking at what the top 100 popularity lists were, celebrities or anything else. They were looking for a name that captured the essence of this child. And we'll look at a few examples from the Bible that prove this pattern. I think of Abram. We meet Abram in Genesis chapter 12, and Abram means exalted father. That alone is a bit interesting, isn't it? Because we know that Abram and his wife Sarai, they do not have any children, and yet his name means exalted father, and it will set the stage for what's going to happen in their lives. Now, a little bit of time goes forward, and in Genesis 17, God gives Abram a new name. He's no longer exalted father. He's now Abraham, which means father of many nations. By the way, if you go to the lineage of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, the first name or one of the first names given is Abraham because he's the father of many nations. He's part of the lineage of Christ. And we who know Christ are part of his spiritual lineage regardless of what ethnicity we are part. So he is indeed the father of many nations. But you remember how Abram responded to God when God changed his name from exalted father to father of many nations. He knows his wife is up in years. He's up in years. And so God says, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And Abram laughs. Let me give you a tidbit of information, a little advice. When you and I read a command of God, when we read a word of God, the right response is not laughter. It's usually obedience. We take the word of God and we apply it. We live it out. But that's not what Abram does. He laughs. My mom used to have this saying, he who laughs last laughs loudest. 
and God laughed last and he laughed loudest because at age 90, Sarai gives birth to Isaac. And we all know that Isaac's name means laughter. Now think about the next 15 or 20 years. Isaac, laughter, pick up your toys. Oh yeah, that's right, God, I laughed at you. Uh, Isaac, come in, oh, laughter, come in. I laughed at you. Every time someone calls his name, it's a reminder to Abram or Abraham that he laughed at God. And that tradition of having symbolic names continued with Isaac's son as well. One of Isaac's sons was named Jacob. And if you remember anything, Jacob, maybe you grew up in Sunday school and you had a nice flannel graph lesson of Jacob going into... You are too young for flannel graph. I remember flannel graph. (laughs) the church Half of up, them remember flannel The church I grew up in was stuck in the 70s. We were still using flannel graph in the 2000s, okay? So I know flannel graph. Flannel graph, Jacob. And if you know anything about Jacob, uh, you remember that he is not a guy of great character early on in his life. He's a deceiver. He's a charlatan. He takes advantage of people. And we see that time and time again. He takes advantage of uh, his father, of his brother, of his uncle. He is a deceiver. And his name reflects that. The name Jacob literally means heel grabber, and that's a idiomatic way of referring to someone as being untrustworthy and deceptive. And we see this pattern all throughout scripture. Names are always significant. So what's in the name Shakespeare? Sorry, everything when it comes to the Bible. Which got me thinking, what would some of our modern day names reveal about us? And do they hold to this pattern? Do they live up to the test or not? I'll let you decide because I looked up a few of Highland's staff members' names and we'll see what they happen to mean. So of course I started off with Heinz. Of course. And sadly, Heinz meant ruler of the home. So I guess we're stuck with that. King Herod Heinz. I like it. It's actually what he makes his column around the office. It's super awkward. But anyway, King Herod Heinz, continue. McDonald. Mm -hmm. It means son of the ruler of the world. So we know who really rules around here. Sue McDonald. Absolutely. (laughs) Jared. It means he who descends. I think it has something to do with the teams he roots for. From Chicago? (laughs) Yeah. Andrew. Theory disproved. It means strong and manly. I, I think that was a challenge. So, Jeff, I will see you in the weight room after the service. You're welcome to join, and we'll see which is the strong and manly one of the two. Oh, my. <laughs> Deloy. Yeah. Keeper of the goose. Keeper of the goose. It's a good name. I kind of think maybe we should call Pastor Sam Pastor Goose from now on. That, that could catch on. I'd like it to catch on. Yeah. Pastor Goose. Pastor Goose. And then we looked up Weiss which was typically used for a person with white hair or remarkably pale complexion. So I think Jeff's real last name should be Jeff Weiss. I think we need to swap those around a little bit. For his stocking this year, he would happily take some just for men's. Okay. And lastly, uh, we have Bear, and it's kind of exactly what you think. Bear just meant naked, so I don't know what to do with that one. But Can we say naked in church? I just did, so we're going with it. Well, they are newlyweds, I guess. Okay, Okay. we're moving on for that. Well, well, these are some humorous examples. Today, we are going to look at four of the most significant names in the entire universe. We're going to look at four of 
of the names that through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Isaiah gave about the coming Christ of Christmas, the Messiah, 700 years before he was born. And each of these names is richly symbolic, and each of these names reveals something amazing about the type of Messiah that Jesus came to be. So with that overview in mind, let's look at Isaiah chapter 9, and we're going to read verses 6 and 7, and then Pastor Jeff's going to give us a little background information to uh, these verses. Here's what Isaiah writes. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this thing. As you and I think of the four little phrases, the four names given to Jesus, I think it behooves us to understand the background. You always want to know the background to every passage. So if you go back to verse 2, it says, The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So what we have is a period of time of darkness in which light is going to come. A period of darkness in which they look forward to a child. So clearly the light, clearly the child, is the babe. This is the one of whom the angel came to Mary and said that you will bring forth a child. And she said, how can this be? Because I am a virgin. And the angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the shadow of the Most High will overwhelm you. So the child to be born will be called Holy, the Holy One of Israel. And she said, may it be to me as you have said. This is the child of whom the angel came to Joseph. And the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. This is the angel that came to the shepherds out in the Magdal at her field, just outside Bethlehem, and said that they're gonna bring good news of great joy that shall be to all people. For unto you, is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. This light, this child, is the one represented by the star in the sky of which the Magi, see it's a new star, read from the book of Numbers, the behold, I see him but not here. Behold, I see him but not now. A star shall rise out of Israel, a scepter shall rise out of Judah, and realize that the Messiah has come, and they travel 650 miles each way to come to see, to behold, to worship the Christ child, to give him gold and frankincense and myrrh. That's the child, that's the light. But what about the darkness? Isaiah is writing 2,700 years before this time. He's writing in the 8th century BC. He's writing from a period from 739 to 701 BC. He's writing in a time period in which God's people is a house divided. We often talk about the 12 tribes of Israel, and right we should. 
but there weren't 12 tribes in a unified nation. For about two centuries, we have the northern tribes. There are 10 tribes. They retain the name Israel. And we have two southern tribes that are Judah. Those 10 northern tribes have between five and six times the land mass and five to six times the population of the two southern tribes. Those 10 northern tribes, Israel, they've acted like a bully to the two southern tribes of Judah. Now, I'm the youngest in my family. I know about bullying. My sisters, my much, much, much older sisters, are much sweeter today than during my childhood. And in the home I grew up in, we had an ironclad rule, and the rule was this, boys, no matter what, cannot hit girls. I think it's a great rule. Every home ought to have it. But there ought to be a second rule, right? Girls cannot hit boys. But in my childhood, we didn't have that second rule. And there were two of them and one of me. That's why I turned out the way I am. But it doesn't really matter because I'm my parents' favorite. I still win. <laughs> so what we have are the 10 northern tribes. They're kind of the bully that have pushed around the two southern tribes of Judah. But there's a greater bully. There's a greater bully in town, and that bully is Assyria. Assyria is an empire. Wherever Assyria goes, they swallow up people, they swallow up nations, they swallow up kingdoms. Assyria just keeps growing and growing. So you can imagine the horror of Israel, 10 northern tribes, and Judah, two southern tribes, knowing that Assyria is coming at them. You would think that this would be the perfect time for them to join back together, to have each other's back, to form a treaty, but that's not what happens. The 10 northern tribes do create a treaty with Syria, not Assyria, with Syria. So you have the Israeli-Syria alliance and they've left the baby Judah out. Judah feels left out, they want vengeance, but remember, vengeance doesn't belong to us. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I the Lord will repay. So they are not to seek vengeance, but they don't believe that. And so Judah thinks, well, Israel formed an alliance with Syria, we'll form our own alliance. And they did the unthinkable. They formed an alliance with Assyria. And so you have Judah and Assyria, and you have Israel and Syria. Now, militarily, these were probably wise alliances. Spiritually, they were utterly devastating. The culture in Syria, the culture in Assyria is idolatrous. Immorality is rampant. A lack of ethics is everywhere. And rather than resist that, they allow the idolatry, the immorality, and the ethics to seep in to their land. And so that's the darkness. And in the midst of this, what does Isaiah say? The people walking in darkness shall see a great light. Look to the light. You who call God 
your God. Stop embracing the culture. Stop embracing the land. Stop embracing the immorality, the lack of ethics, the idolatry, and embrace the Lord. So what does Isaiah call them? What does he call us to? To keep our eyes on the child, to keep our eyes on the light, to keep our eyes on the Christ of Christmas. That's the call from Isaiah chapter 9 when he gives us four names of this Savior that we are to keep our eyes upon. Yeah, so this backstory reminds us that in dark days, a question always services. And what will I trust or in whom will I trust? And the nations of Judah and Israel at the time, they made a very poor decision. Rather than trusting in the Lord, they trusted in these evil pagan nations. And I think this account is here today to remind us to not make the same mistake. Who are we to trust when it feels like we're walking through dark days, which for many of us, it certainly feels that way. And in that darkness, Isaiah says, there's a person you should trust in that is far better than anything else in this world. And that is the coming Messiah. That is the Christ of Christmas. And he gives us these four names to tell us why Jesus truly is a Messiah, a Savior worth trusting. Each one reveals why he alone is worthy of our trust. And the first name is this. Jesus is the mighty counselor. He's the mighty counselor. Now, contrary to Handel's Messiah, these aren't two different names. If you've ever heard a Christmas cantata, you've probably heard wonderful, comma, counselor, comma, mighty. Nope, no comma there. Wonderful counselor is one name. Wonderful is a modifier of counselor. You probably don't know this, but in my office, there's a clock. And on every hour, it plays Handel's Messiah. Every hour. I do know that. Everyone in the office knows that, Jeff. (laughs) Your clock drives us all crazy. So anyway, thankfully, my office is a different part of the building. So I try uh, and share. There you go. Yes, thank you. So wonderful counselor. And the word wonderful is a a modifier that, that means perfect or miraculous in this context. So what this really means is that Jesus is not just a a wise sage, but Jesus is going to be the perfect personification of wisdom. And this is a theme that we see not only in Isaiah chapter 9, but Paul hits on this same theme in Colossians chapter 2. And here's what Paul says centuries later about Jesus. He says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach the assurance of the riches, a full assurance of understanding, and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom, in Jesus, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Jesus are hidden all the treasures of perfect wisdom and exhaustive knowledge, which practically means that Jesus has never faced an enigma that he can't solve. There's no paradox that he can't unravel. Jesus has no need of hindsight for he sees the end from the beginning. He's the all-knowing, all-wise Messiah, Savior. And he alone can shoulder the title, Wonderful, Perfect Counselor. So how should this impact our lives? Well, our first word of application this morning is that Jesus, therefore, needs to be our chief source of wisdom and counsel and guidance. And that seems rather obvious. Nothing groundbreaking there. But that's one of those premises that's easy to intellectually assent to. Yeah, Jesus is my chief source of wisdom. But then we live entirely differently as if Jesus wasn't our chief source of counsel and wisdom and knowledge. Let me illustrate what that might look like. Colossians 2.3 does not say... And CNN, Fox News, the Wall Street Journal, or the Jerusalem Post are found 
all of the hidden wisdom and knowledge of this world. It doesn't say in Colossians 2.3 that in terminal degrees, higher education or learning is found all of the wisdom and exhaustive knowledge of this world. Not to undermine any of those things. That's just not the end all be all. Colossians 2.3 does not say that in political leaders are found the answers and all the wisdom and knowledge that we look for. That, that's not the source. The source is Jesus, the wonderful counselor. Our society is in desperate need of wise counsel, of wisdom, of guidance. However, most of our society is looking in all the wrong places. And we as Christ's followers need to make sure that we are not following, falling into those same ruts. Which means when there's a pressing issue in our life, we'd be wise to look at scripture first before Googling what the answer should be. When there's something in our life that's pressing that we're feeling anxious over, we should pray before talking it over with a coworker or friend. Rather than consuming hours and hours every single day of culturally manufactured uh, products for us, we, through social media or news outlets or, or commentaries or, or, or whatever else it might be, we need to spend a little bit more time in God's word communing with him, with our mentor, with our discipler, with things that are going to point us back to Jesus, the fountain of, of true wisdom and knowledge. James 1 tells us that God is generous to give wisdom to those who seek it. But we have to seek it with hearts that are undivided, with hearts that are not wavering in doubt, and hearts that aren't simultaneously looking for wisdom through these other broken means. So this morning, we really, we really need to ask the question, whom or what is my ultimate source of wisdom right now? If the answer is anything other than Jesus, we're missing the mark. And we need to go back to the basics and see Jesus as our ultimate source of wisdom. So that's our first name for Jesus. So that first name, wonderful counselor, there is no enigma that God can't solve no problem too big for the Lord. The second one is mighty God, El Gabor. El is the Hebrew word or a dominant Hebrew word for God. Gabor means warrior. This is the warrior God. Now think about the setting. If you have this behemoth, Assyria, that is about to pounce, if you're terrified of the socio-political environment, the military environment in which you live, wouldn't you like to know that you serve not only the wonderful counselor who knows all things, the beginning from the end, but you serve El Gabor, the warrior God. But he's not just the warrior God, he's the Emmanuel God, he's the God with us. And so Isaiah says, look to the light. Look to the child, he's coming. We look back on the light, we look back on the child. He has come. I love the way John puts it. John in his gospel in the prologue, which is the beginning, in verse 14 of the first chapter says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt, eskenosin, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, a scanosin. I think this is one of those areas where the English struggles to capture what the Greek text gives us. I would have translated it this way. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. What that refers to is the picture in the Old Testament. Think before we have the temple. 
Before we have the Solomonic Temple in 970 BC, we have a tent of meetings. We have this tabernacle that is set up and taken down, set up and taken down as the nomadic Jews move. And inside the tabernacle and later inside the temple, there would be a large curtain. And inside that would be the holy place or the holy of holies. This is the abode of God on earth. It has or stores his throne, which is the Ark of the Covenant. Now you remember that inside that holy place, you and I cannot go because we are sinful and God is sinless. But once a year, Leviticus 16, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, a high priest who is chosen would ceremonially bathe and put on fresh garments. He would offer an atonement, a sacrifice, a bloody sacrifice for his own sin. And then he would take a bloody sacrifice, an atonement, and go into the holy place. And there would be the Ark of the Covenant. And inside the Ark is the law of God, the very law you and I violate. And as God looks down on his law, and he looks down at the violation of his law, the first thing he sees before he sees the law is the bloody sacrifice, the atonement. And he makes a way for us. Well, God is the atonement through Jesus Christ. Jesus came, fully God, fully man, the incarnation. He tabernacled among us, lived among us, laid down his life for us. Think of what he did. He left the splendors of heaven where angels waited on him hand and foot. He gave up the crown for the cross. He gave up the perfection of his own nature to take on sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us that through him, through faith in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. And so when, when the Jews are walking in a darkness, Isaiah says, look to the light. When they see the darkness all around, he says, look to the child. He tabernacles among us. He will take on human flesh. He will pay the penalty of sin that through faith in him alone, we might be given eternal life. That's the Christ of Christmas. James 4.8 says, Draw near to him, believe in him, draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. I love that second name. Jesus is the mighty God. In dark days, they were tempted to wonder, has God forgotten or abandoned us? And by Jesus coming and taking on flesh, he reminds us that God is never far off, even in our moments of doubt and pain. So we see Jesus full divinity and full humanity in this idea of him coming to be Emmanuel, the mighty God, the God-man, the Savior. But then in this next name, we see a little bit about uh, the way in which Jesus would interact with his, uh, with his followers. His third name is Jesus is the everlasting God. Now, at first glance, when we look at this, we might think this is another mention of Jesus' divinity. I think mighty God is one of the clearest attestations that Jesus truly was fully God. He was fully divine. And we might think, oh, everlasting father, this is also referring to Jesus' divinity. However, I, I don't think that is actually the case. Uh, I don't think Isaiah is trying to conflate Jesus with God the Father. 
See, we serve a Trinitarian God, which means that God has eternally existed as one God, but present in three unique persons. God the Father, God the Son, which is Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, they all possess the same nature and attributes. However, they are distinct persons. So Jesus truly is a different person than God the Father. So I don't think he's trying to conflate Jesus with the Father in this instance. Instead, I think this name is revealing the kind of disposition that Jesus has towards his followers. He's going to be a God who isn't an angry, distant deity, but instead he has a natural disposition towards his followers of that of a loving father. Personally, I love what this reveals about Jesus. It's immeasurably comforting to know that Jesus' care for us mirrors that of a good and loving father. As our loving father, Jesus presents a way for us to have a right relationship with him again. As our loving father, Jesus provides for us. He protects us. He loves us. As our loving father, he also lovingly lays down boundaries. If we live within those, uh, we can thrive in this life. But when we cross those boundaries, we enter into sin. And Jesus doesn't want us to do that because sin inevitably brings pain and brokenness. And as a loving father, Jesus is even willing to momentarily discipline us to turn our hard hearts back with repentance uh, to a right relationship with him again. And as a loving father, Jesus gives us access, unrestricted access to his presence for the help that we need to faithfully follow him. That's what it looks like to have a growing intimate relationship with Jesus. And that's the type of relationship that Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ of Christmas, desires to have with each and every one of us. Let me illustrate uh, what this relationship looks like practically lived out with an example from Pastor Jeff's life. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. So if you were to go down the office hallway at our Wausau campus, you would notice that as you look at the different doors, there are signs that are hanging on the pastor's offices that when they're flipped around say, pastor in study. Now, those signs are rarely, dis- they're rarely displayed. That doesn't mean we don't study very often. It just means those signs are rarely displayed because when those signs are up, it's a way of saying access is restricted and we like to be approachable and interact with each other. So Jeff rarely puts up that sign, but when it's up, you know it's business, right? You know, so you know he means business. Jeff needs some time for intense study. So one summer, I remember in an afternoon, his sign had been up all afternoon. He's probably cramming for the Sunday sermon. And no, I'm just kidding. Jeff is very well prepared. He's never cramming for a Sunday sermon. But his sign was up. And uh, we were, some of us were like, ah, we need to talk to Jeff, but we were holding off uh, because we didn't want to disturb him. But that summer, his daughter Hannah was on staff as an intern. And Hannah comes walking down the hallway. She takes one look at the sign and flings open the door. And she says, hey, dad, everyone's been working hard. I think you need to take everyone out for ice cream. Okay, no joke. And he did, and he paid for everyone's ice cream. Now, I don't think anyone else on staff would dare go to Jeff's office, fling open the door and say, Dad, I think you should take us all out for ice cream. We've been working pretty hard. When the pastor and study signs, maybe Jared. That sounds like Jared, but nobody else. Doing that sounds like a great way to land yourself on the bad list. And no one wants to be on it's the, the, bad, naughty, the list, naughty list. And I check it twice. Yes, yes, yes. There you go. So uh, why, why could Hannah do this when the rest of us wouldn't do this? Well, Hannah has a different relationship. She knows that she is the affection and attention of her, of her loving father. Access is not restricted or denied. 
She can approach her father whenever she's in need. And that's the picture that we have in this passage of what a relationship with Jesus is like. We have the affection and attention of our Savior. Jesus invites us to boldly come before his throne to find grace and mercy and help in any time of need. Jesus will not kick us out. He's not too busy. He's not different, indifferent, or distant from us. He is near. He is tender. He is sympathetic. And Jesus tells us that he's working things out for our good, and we don't have to doubt whether or not Jesus is for us. So this characteristic of Jesus really demands us to ask the question, is that the picture I have of what Jesus is like in, in my life? Or have I allowed a distorted picture of what Jesus is like displace the truth? If that's the case, we really need to allow the beauty and truth of this passage to soak into our spirit and endear us to the Christ of Christmas, our amazing Savior. So, so far, when Isaiah says, look to the light, look to the child, he's told us that that child is the wonderful counselor. Jesus and his word should be the first stop, the most important stop, when you and I have a problem something that needs to be addressed. We look to what God's word says. Is there a parallel in scripture that we can apply to our lives? He is the wonderful counselor. He's El Gabor. He's the mighty God. Do we have an enemy? We do, Satan. We're told to put on the armor of God, but we serve the ultimate warrior. For those in eighth century BC, they saw Assyria. This behemoth. And Isaiah said, relax, relax. You serve El Gabor. But not only is he the warrior God, he's the everlasting father. He's the tender one. You can go to him. He longs for a relationship. He wants to be that perfect father. So wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. Now, those of us who have read the Gospels, I think we can say, at least early on, that almost no one got this. They didn't get Jesus. They didn't get the Messiah. They were looking for the wrong type. Their collective throats had a boot of Rome on it. The Jews had been a people that had been pushed around by nation after nation after nation, and collectively, Rome was ruling. And they were looking for a Messiah that didn't bring peace but brought war. They were looking for a Messiah that overthrew Rome. They were looking for a nation creator, a nation solution, a political solution. They were looking for a military Messiah. That's not who the angels proclaimed. When they talked to the shepherds in the McDowell Edder field, they said, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, goodwill for men. I would submit sometimes we're still looking for the wrong Messiah. The Messiah that we ought to be looking for came to solve the sin problem within us. It's a spiritual problem every one of us has. All have sinned, all have fallen short of God's glory. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Messiah came not to be a nation builder, but to be a soul restorer, our souls. 
If you're here today and you've not accepted Christ as your personal Savior, the Christ of Christmas longs for you. He came, took on human flesh, lived a perfect life, paid the penalty of sin, not his own, but our sin, died, conquered sin and death, rose again, and longs for you to say, come, be my Savior, be my Lord. The first century church, at least early on, didn't get that. They were looking for a nation builder, a political Messiah. I'd suggest we have the same problem today. We're still looking for the wrong Messiah. Not you, I trust. But many are looking for the wrong Messiah. They're looking for a nation builder. Let me talk about our nation right now. I think we are a people of panic. God calls us to be a people of peace. When in the last two years have you read a headline that doesn't call for panic? We're a nation of panic. We are a nation of panic. We are a world of panic. But God calls for something different. I don't want to put my head in the sand. I do read news sources on a regular basis. I read a lot of news, maybe too much news. But I don't want to be a people of the panic. In spite of the news, I want to be a person of peace. And the Prince of Peace came to offer you peace. Some of us are looking too much at what's going around. I don't mean that we don't ignore or we do ignore, we don't ignore what's going around. We, we know about it. We're learned people, but we're not driven by the panic all around us. Our eyes are on something different. We're patriots. We love our country. We should. God has blessed us with this nation. But we have a higher kingdom. And let's not conflate the two. The Prince of Peace someday will rule but that will be a rule physically during the millennial kingdom. Right now, he rules spiritually. And he calls us to peace spiritually. He's not a nation builder. He's a peace restorer. Do you know the Prince of Peace? That's the Christ of Christmas. Have you asked him to be your savior? And are you and I keeping our eyes, in spite of circumstances, on the Prince of Peace. A people walk in darkness. They have seen a great light. A people are surrounded by darkness, but they keep their eyes on the light. Is that you? Is that me? Let's pray. Father God, we want in the midst of the panic all around us, to have a peace that surpasses all understanding to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We know that peace first starts as we give our lives over by faith to Jesus Christ, your son. And if someone here does not know Jesus, may by faith they believe in Christ alone. 
but we grow in peace. Having a relationship with Christ in which we keep our eyes on the light, on your son, on the child, the God-man. Father, you promise perfect peace for those whose eyes are stayed on thee. Give us that peace. Allow you to be the object. You, your son, your spirit to be the object of our minds, our thoughts. Control us, guide us, give us your peace. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.